Welcome back to the Brass and Unity podcast. And this episode this week is brought to you by Combat Flip Flops. Bad for running and even worse for fighting. Combat Flip Flops are your ticket to the unarmed forces by providing you with the military-inspired quality footwear for men and women. Be sure to enter the code UNITY at checkout to help support the podcast. And in support of women in developing countries, head over to combatflipflops.com and become part of their unarmed forces today. Also brought to you by Heads Up Guys. Heads Up Guys is a resource providing men with information and practical tips on how to manage and prevent their depression. This is a dedicated online tool devoted to helping men get the help that they need, finding someone to talk to, and navigate difficult times. For more information, please head over to headsupguys.org. Also brought to you by Jackson Rowe. Vancouver Design Jackson Row clothing caters to a relaxed bohemian lifestyle. Large doses of love go into every single piece, featuring comfortable favorites like sweaters, dresses, play suits, and even stuff for men and children. Made up of neutral tones and flowy West Coast vibes, Jackson Row uses only the highest quality materials to ensure that you stay comfortable and looking great. Be sure to check out yours today at jacksonrow.ca and use the code UNITY at checkout. And by Beneath, Starting with the first thing that you put on in the morning, Beneath inspires you to be your most authentic self. Get ready to experience increased comfort that radically outperforms anything that you've tried before while leaving minimal impact on Mother Earth. Use the code UNITY to get 15% off at checkout at Beneath.com. That's B-N-3-T-H.com. So today I got the opportunity to sit and chat with somebody I've always wanted to chat with and I've been um, a huge fan of, Donna Bishop from CBC's Fashion Columnist, as well as Fashion Talks, as CAFA, and she's got an incredible podcast called On a High. It was such an insightful conversation chatting about not only mental health, but what's going on in the fashion industry from everything to do with COVID and how to survive it. And this amazing thing that we have called cannabis that's been helping so many. And uh, I really hope you guys enjoy this episode of the podcast. Hey, girl. Hey, what's up? I'm doing well. How are you? I am super, super, super well because I never thought I'd get this opportunity to chat with you. And I'm kind of... Please. No, seriously. Huge fan. Miss Don- Donna Bishop, I'm a huge fan. Oh, I'm making my day. Stop, stop, stop. Stop. <laughs> Just stop, but, but keep going. Tell me more. No, seriously, it's it's been such a pleasure to uh, to get this opportunity. I know there is no way in heck I would have gotten it if we didn't get a CAFA nomination because nobody knew who we were until this year. Oh so, my gosh. I'm really excited to like finally be on your radar as a, as a, as a brand owner only because fashion for me has been something I'm learning. I don't want to say learning to love because I love it, but I was never in it before, uh, this industry. So it's, it's more of, um, it's a learning, love, hate, like that kind of push pull struggle and, and learning how to be around all these amazing designers and how people think it's, it's fascinating to me. So it's, uh, it's an honor. Well, and it's an honor to be here because I think what you're doing with Brass and Unity as a brand and and what you do for for veterans and how you're broaching into other ways to, you know, support mental health and whatnot, which is something very dear to my heart as well. Um, It's a pleasure, pleasure to be here in the early days of so many of the things you're doing. Thank you. Well, yeah, I mean, oh my God, there's so many things we've got. Yeah, a lot. I mean, COVID postponed some of them. So I I will, I think it's for the best. I'm I'm liking to 
have that kind of positive idea that it's okay that my book isn't coming out this year. It's okay. It's fine. Do I look fine? I feel fine. <laughs> you look beautiful sure. and fine. <laughs> yeah, that's whatever. So I'm I'm learning to accept that. But then in, in the meantime, it kind of gave me this opportunity to you know, I've been I've been been on a few podcasts recently, and I've had a lot of uh, really great conversations with people. And um, I found listening to podcasts personally quite uh, effective on my life in a in a positive uh, momentum type of way, where I've felt the need to push myself a little bit more and try different things and put myself out there. And having a weirdly unique story, I've been able to have all these different kind of conversations. And that kind of landed me with you. And with fashion and how you work in every aspect of it, um, I have a bajillion questions. So can you please tell me how the hell fashion became like your entire life? <laughs> You know, it's it's funny because my professional life has definitely been one of of twists and turns. I'm not someone who knew what I wanted to do when I was a teenager and followed a meticulous course of events to make it to make it happen, which is something I've come to to embrace about my career path. But one thing that has always been constant is I have loved getting dressed in the morning. I am one of those people who like loves the idea of putting on clothes and how am I going to feel? And, 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 and I mean, I can intellectualize it a little bit now, but even as a, as a teenager and I went to a school with a uniform, I loved getting dressed. So that kind of element of fashion is something that's always been part of my DNA, even if it wasn't yet part of my professional, professional world and professional work. Um, so, I mean, I took all sorts of twists and turns. My, you know, formal education is in film and art history. I've worked in public relations with some of, you know, some massive brands like Piper Heights Stick Champagne and The Body Shop and, and some other like big lifestyle brands. I've worked as a makeup artist, which is how I got involved in the beauty business. I started a company called Green Beauty in 2009 which was one of the first, if not the first, um, online retailer for all natural cosmetics and skincare, but that still had to work because I was coming from the makeup artist perspective. And fashion and beauty are always two sides of the same coin. And because I think I had a lot of first mover advantage, I did a lot of media and, and have always, you know, either worked in media training when I was working in PR, it's something I still do freelance, but working in the beauty business, you can't help but work in the fashion world at the same time. And when I wanted to shift in 2013 away from, you know, Green Beauty had grown into a full-time, uh, day spa and two locations of salons, I thought, you know what, like this isn't really filling me up anymore. And that's when I transitioned into working um, in fashion and with CAFA and started fashion talks and began working with CBC and all the other things you kind of know, know now. So it's always been part of my DNA, but it certainly hasn't been part of my professional world, but I, I love that it is now. Yeah, it's interesting because you don't always, a lot of kids uh, growing up and especially for me, I, a lot of them, it seemed like they knew exactly what they wanted to do. I found that troubling. Um, that that it's, I, I don't know if it's maybe spoon fed or if it's just nature versus nurture or they truly, is. that's really their passion. But I, I find a lot of uh, people you see when they're younger, I mean, I, the reason I bring it up, I have a four-year-old and uh, I see obviously he's not going to be a firefighter on the moon. But 
I in no way, shape or form am I turning that shit down. Like this kid and I tell him, he goes, mom, I'm going to be a firefighter on the moon, right? And then you and dad are going to come with me. You're damn right you are. Absolutely. You want to be an astronaut, you can do that, but you also need to do X, Y, and Z to get there. Fire, you know, we'll work on that. But I don't turn anything down. But what I see a little bit more of now is people and parents who are unwilling to uh, give in to that because they're like, oh, no, you need to, you got to have, you need to be a doctor, you need to. And you start to see, you start to see that kind of behavior develop. So when kids, I find, are in, you know, 16, 17, about to graduate, and they say, oh, I'm going to be a doctor. It's like, well, is that is that really what you want? Or is that just something, you know, you, you've been told to be interested in? And I often like to see um, these young people kind of change their mind or have something happen in their life, hopefully for the positive, where kind of they go, what if I did something a little more creative instead? And then maybe that helped me. I just like to see... I like to see this whole world opening up the way it's opening up in terms of um, this artistic uh, allowance, if you want to call it, for our society compared to what it used to be. You know, I'm a parent too. I have a 16-year-old and a 12-and-a-half-year-old. Oh, you And it. I've talked a lot about, you know, what you're saying really resonates with me and something I've talked a lot about with, with my friends who are parents is there there's become this culture of wanting to prevent and protect our kids from discomfort. And that, that wanting, you know, please don't experience discomfort. I want you to be protected from that at all costs has led to, I think, a lot of like micromanaging and overprotectiveness and overprogramming and, and that like, you know, what is it you need to do in order to do achieve that thing? Like that's come from this place of, we don't want them to experience that the pain and discomfort of, of not knowing or of needing to try again or of it not working out. And so much is, is learned and achieved in that. Mm -hmm. And I think we do our kids and ourselves such a disservice when we do not honor the discomfort that comes with trying again or not knowing or failing or, Mm -hmm. or just needing to, to do differently. That whole participation medal situation they got going on in the world right now hurts my soul a lot because I remember sucking and sucking hard at something and realizing and allowing that um, to develop who I was in such a positive way. And I can't imagine now, I mean, I went on a, I went on a spree of, of wins when I was fighting back in my fighting days. And uh, I remember it because I it came to a very abrupt knockout when I lost and I got kicked in the face and I woke up on the ground and it devastated me. It humbled me. It broke me, but it taught me how to lose. But it taught it's me so also. Important. Yeah. But it also taught me that, um, you need to, well, do you ever want to feel that again? No. So how do we get better? There is such humbling in things not working out the way we wanted them to or failing or losing. I mean, we're watching that south of the border, right? Like, hello. Um, and, and, you know, Green Beauty did, Green Beauty was not an enormous success. It was, it took me a long time to be able to lean into talking about a business that didn't really work out the way that I wanted it to. And it is humbling and it is, um, it, it fosters growth and it, if you, if you allow yourself, those experiences push you in, in new and, and stronger rooted directions, I think. Yeah. And I noticed that in, um, having, I mean, because my son is so young, I notice it in the parents that is the new generation, right? This like Jack's four. 
So it's, you know, I'm dealing now with um, a very different type of mom. Um, I don't know a better way to put that. I've got the anti-vaxxer moms. I've got the vaxxer moms. I've got the iPad moms, the no iPad moms. I mean, I've got the outdoor preschool, the indoor preschool. You know, it's so I'm in this weird dynamic of you feed your kids a certain thing. And if it's got sugar in it, you're going to get a word from the teacher. Like it's a very different type of world to parent in than the way my parents parented me. And I'm not to say that it's any better or worse. It's just very, very different. I think there is, we are doing, like you said, our children a high disservice when we don't allow them to just eat shit. Um, there's a better way to put it, but that's just the truth. And Jack eats shit on a regular basis, hard. And I mean, teeth through lips, like whole kind of situation because there's something about building that character. And I will tell you, there was a moment recently when I was like, mom win. And I'm going to tell you about it because I think it's so very, Bring <laughs> very it. few and on. far between. And people don't want to talk about having mom wins because they're like, you're conceited. I'm like, no, my kid's a little shit, but I had a win. He, um, I was cleaning the house the other day and he looked at me and he goes, mama, can I clean my bathroom too? And I was like, you're damn right you can. That kid cleaned all of the toilets and all of the house because he was just so proud of himself. He felt like he was contributing. He, he had loved purpose. every he single you doing second something of it. And wanted to wanted to like level up, right? I'm gonna like, straight up send you that picture after because I took a picture of him and he's thumbs up with the toilet brush, just loving his life. And that to me spoke volumes. Just I thought I was going to ruin this kid. Oh, we're a culture that values easy street. And if we if we continue to speak like work and effort is a burden, how are our kids ever going to be proud and want to move forward in those ways? You know, there is there is there is great contributing being done when you clean the bathroom of a family and that should be celebrated oh, and yeah. and like yeah, told and that, that is something amazing. And it was. And I made a made a point of it because I knew at that moment when he I remember because I remember my mom telling me, she's like, You were such a mother hen. Like you love to clean the house with me. You love to do that stuff. And I just remember it. And then when I saw him going, Mom, can I do it? I was I had a moment of my, you know, parenting where I'm rushing around and I'm like, I want to go, no, 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 I'll do it. Don't worry about it. And then I totally stopped and I was thinking to myself, this is going to be good for him because this is, he got his own bathroom now. You know, he's got that whole big boy deal going. I'm of like, course. let's see. And so he did it and I was so proud. And then to hear your son say to himself, good job, Bubby. Good job. Yes. Like in his, he's, he's using his own inner voice and to know that that's his self-talk. Fuck yes. Yeah. Mom win. Cause that's intrinsic motivation, right? Like we shouldn't, we should not do because the outer world tells us we fucking better. Exactly. We need to do because it comes from inside ourselves. And you can't learn that when you're 15. It has to start when you're four and you're like, damn straight, I can clean a bathroom. Give me that brush. Yeah, he'll do that. Like, I mean, this kid, that's, that's what I'm finding with parenting this kid is like he is... He's such an independent thinker 
And he's such a opinionated child, which who knows where that came from. And, shut it, Coleman. And, you know, I, I, I'm starting to just take ownership and honesty and be happy with it because I've gotten to a point now in this business, especially that if, if, if you want something, you, you damn well better yell and you damn well better do it with drive. And you damn well, if you get that opportunity, you better make it, you may better make it happen. So, cause it only happens once. And in this industry, you, you and I both know that you're going to get an opportunity. And if you don't do it properly, you're not going to have that trust in the society as a brand ever, ever again. Um, that adage of good thing, good things come to those who wait is absolute bullshit. Like good things come to those who are prepared and work hard and seize the moment when they see an opportunity. Yeah. And I think that's the difference between obviously the successful and those that blame, blame the world. So I, I want to know, I, I'm totally going to go off trap uh, track on fashion. Cause I, I learned this recently and I didn't know this and I'm very excited about it. And I don't know how comfortable you are talking about it. Um, on a high podcast? Yes. Can we please talk about my favorite topic? <laughs> what do you want to know? <laughs> I want to know everything about it because I don't think you know the love I have for that plant. Ah. No, no, no. That plant saved my life five years ago. Tell me. 10 different pharmaceutical drugs diagnosed with severe post-traumatic stress disorder when I got home from Af Afghanistan. Never told I'd never work again. My treatment doctor goes, okay, let's try it. And no, you don't want to. This was before it was legal. And a girlfriend of mine goes, there's this group called Women Grow. You need to go speak at it and tell your story because I just started using it. And I went from the 10 pharmaceutical drugs down to one and only cannabis use. And I started sleeping through the night. I started having less nightmares. My anxiety went down. I started being able to travel. I started being able to have a business. I had a healthy, healthy, healthy little boy. They told me I'd never have because of the drugs I was on. And it changed my life. Um, I remember the moment I had to have a conversation with my in-laws um, because nobody knew I was using it. I never smoked it in college. I never, I was not like that kid. I was fighting. So I was training and my in-laws are incredibly accepting or so are my parents, but I also was like, drugs are bad. We don't do drugs because, you know, the, thanks to the U.S. administration, drugs are bad. You say no. And so I always said no. And then he was like, just try it. I did it. And it was like my whole world. Uh, it felt like for a moment I could actually make it through this bullshit. It felt like through a moment I could maybe be a parent one day and have the patience. And then I got a chance to go talk at Women Grow before it was legal and um, had to post about it on Facebook. So I had the call with them. I'm like, you know, it's, it's like not what you guys think. It's like, don't like worry. I'm not going to like, you know, it, it was this, I, ha I felt I built this up in my head because of this perception we have and our society has given us and our, and our children and our youth that this is such a gateway drug, that it's bad for you, that it will... It will uh, rot your brain. And what else? What else, Coleman? What else will we do? Yeah, it'll, it'll the, the list. The list of goes on of, and on and know, on. Long, long list of should nots, should nots. Oh. Well, you, I mean, you touch upon so many things there, right? Like, first of all, I think you know, cannabis is is generally understood to be something that people only want to use recreationally because they want to like tap out and watch a funny movie and the whole Cheech and Chong bro romance, blah 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 blah. Right. Um, and and there is so much more 
to that magical plant than mm-hmm. that and dispelling that commu- dispelling that that is the only community and the only reason to experience cannabis yeah. it has been a huge part right mm-hmm. um on a high came about because michelle billadeau who's my co-host on that when cannabis became legal we wanted to do an event because whether you use it recreationally or medicinally or choose not to at all as it becomes legal it is going to impact almost every single industry in a massive way, be it insurance, be it healthcare, be it um, entertaining, be it events, be it um, weddings, weddings, everything, be it, be it um, you know fitness, be it design. Like all of a sudden, we need you know the shit to do our stuff with, and I don't want it to look like I bought it at like a head shop circa 1986. Do you know what I mean? So, oh my god, you get it so much. It's I'm so happy right now. So. <laughs> There's so much to talk about in terms of, you know, cannabis and its impact on culture that we wanted, that we, par- we partnered with Business of Cannabis and wanted to pl- have a place where we could talk about those intersections mm-hmm. um, with lots of people who are at the forefront of, of, that, of that industry, right? So it was fascinating to talk about people, you know, like yourself who had incredible healthcare stories. Um, we had one gentleman on, um, he's one of the founders of a really cool company called uh, Keep, which is a, a, a security device to keep your, your cannabis safe from, as they liked to say, uh, you know, nosy roommates or, or curious kids. <laughs> Shut the front door. I have just been, I'm not kidding. Oh my God, I wish my husband was here right now. I have been looking for a uh, lot, because Jack's four, and I'm deathly deathly like legitimately afraid I have I don't have any edibles because that's not something I fuck with but I have oils and I have dried but those oils there's there's a THC one and that is my absolute nightmare and do you know how hard it is to find a big safe object to keep that stuff that's not fucking ugly yes that's not horrendous and looks like I should be like hanging out on the street yep Exactly. And his health story was around epilepsy and how cannabis has helped him. I know all about that. My girlfriend's son. I love it. Danielle from Calix, which is an incredible company. I'm sure you know Calix. Like her stories of healthcare with helping her husband and the wonders of CBD. Like there are so, there are so many aspects of it. And like anything else, you know, just whether you're talking about, you know, the, the brush you use to comb your hair or the glasses you want to have in your, in your house to serve, you know, kombucha or water or wine in, aesthetics matter. And as cannabis becomes more and more accepted and something more and more people have in their home and are more and more open to having it not be, you know, in a, in a Ziploc bag, in a tinfoil bag thing at the back of the fridge and the freezer behind like the bag of corn like as people become more open to having it be something that is in their home there needs to be an aesthetic message that 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 suits all kinds of aesthetic tastes you know what i mean so on a high was out of that it's it's i love connections right i love connecting people with people i like connecting people and ideas and connecting ideas and ideas and Mm -hmm. cannabis opened such an opportunity to connect this legalization of this thing we once thought was the devil to Mm -hmm. how that is going to leave a mark on so many industries 
Do you find it's affecting the fashion industry a lot? You know what? I think it I think it definitely is. It's happened in a variety of ways. Like I think with so many things with cannabis, everyone it was like Y2K, right? We were all yeah. kind of freaking for this like yes. reaction. And it was kind of like, oh, well, it's here now. It fizzled. Okay, well, well, it fizzled. Um, so, you know, I think there are a couple of ways it's impacting fashion. There's certainly a, you know, people wanting to be, you know, weed proud and using the motif of, you know, the leaf or something on, on patterns and in jewelry and stuff like that. We see that a lot. The hemp plant as a textile is yes. magical magical and seeing seeing designers want to incorporate hemp as a as an alternative to you know cottons or or other knits is amazing um watching something that happened a little at the beginning and i think it kind of took a bit of a dip and now i think we'll see more of it is the partnerships between fashion brands and either lps or or other or other cannabis companies in canada that's harder because our branding legislation is so rigid. It is. Um, There's ways know. around it if they want to. I mean, we have a partnership with Afria yeah. and I'm a, I'm a jewelry brand and you know, they, they sell, um, where they're only non-cannabis related product on their website, on their, and their LP. And they've been, I mean, I've been in contact and working with them with Brass and Unity since, Lift and it was li not legal there. And I was pregnant. It was 2000. Jack was born in 2016. So yeah, it was the summer of 2016. Um, and I met Afria there before and they had an incredible program for veterans. They had a veteran cannabis program and a lot of them, I know CandyMed has one. Um, I know a few other of the larger LPs have them. And essentially what it is, if you don't know, is it's this great program that your doctor can sign you up for if you are a veteran or first responder. I, if you're a federal first responder, so I believe RCMP. Um, and what you get is uh, coverage for your cannabis before or in the meantime, while VAC, you're waiting for VAC to approve or send the actual financial approval for you to have that. And so if you qualify like me, I'm one of those very fortunate ones that qualifies and um, my cannabis, I go through veteran affairs. And so they allow you to order it in the meantime. And I know personally when prescriptions have run up, um, it's been a lifesaver because the idea of all of a sudden having this medication that's working and I'm thriving and then because of a clerical error or a funding error, I'm not able to get that medication any longer. They kind of pick up that slack. And so every year, I believe in November, when a veteran orders uh, their cannabis, Afria sends one of our products in there with them. Um, and so we try to create that community with them because I think it's really important We've seen a spike in cannabis use with veterans uh, before it was legal. And since Afghanistan, you've seen this just ramp up because it is working and it is working in a way that is allowing these people and first responders to actually continue to function in our society in a meaningful, meaningful way. When if we were putting them on lorazepam and all these other drugs constantly, you can't safely have them do their job. It's just not reality. Well, the hurdle of stigma is so enormous. Oh, you, I lost my career. Yeah, it's gone. Like you can't, you know, you lose, you can lose your job. You can lose your life. And some people, that stigma is enough to, for them to lose everything. So it's quite troubling. Um, what I'm seeing in the fashion industry is, like you said, those, those LPs making the connection with brands. And I, and I also believe that if more 
were to like the faster people get on that train, the bigger those are going to be because the the relationship can be cultivated in, in a way that can provide they have so much funding like the cannabis industry has so much money that if they were to partner with the right brands and the right things could you imagine what a brand could do with that free capital Absolutely. i just that 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 makes my brain spin because i get really excited at the idea of it's always, always comes down to capital, right? It seems like when you're growing a brand or you're growing a business, it always comes down to capital. And so they've got the money, my God. Yeah. They've it's got the tool, money. It's a right? Like the, exactly. it, it is one of the harsh realities of, of being in the commodity business is, you know, the, the tool of funds is a really, really, really important. Yes. It's an important tool to have, you, can, mm-hmm. you know, like there's, it, it is not the be all and the end all, but to say it doesn't matter is just ignorant. It's so important. Yes. Um, and that's why I see so many fashion designers who went to business school being some of the ones who, you know, really, you know, have thriving businesses, not exclusively, but a lot of them. Yeah. I know even for me, I'm, people say my business is thriving, but I, what I consider thriving, what others do is always going to be on the spectrum. So, I mean, I can honestly say I didn't do business school, but I can say that I, I'm married to a family of entrepreneurs and there's a reason why my business has been able to grow and it's not because of me. And I'm totally okay saying that. It's totally because of my my family, my husband, my father-in-law and their know-how and their willingness to teach and educate. And I think I learned more from them kind of watching and learning and listening than I've ever learned at any point in any education I've done besides hands-on military training. I can't say I've actually been able to take that and move forward with it, they've been able to, I have, the stuff I have learned in the time frame that I've been in this industry is disgusting. It's actually that, that, that monumental. And I think it's because when you have people who are entrepreneurs in particular, you get a different type of uh, behavior. You get a scrappier. Oh yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Absolutely. The, the psyche of the entrepreneur is a very, very specific and very magical and very, uh, unicorn. You're a different kind of, it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a thing. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I think we have, I know, I know I have lots of friends who are entrepreneurs and my mom would always be like, I have never in my life seen so many people that work for themselves. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea of the founder and the entrepreneur is something that continues to become more and more and more and more and more common. Mm-hmm. I do, uh, I do mentoring at, uh, at my alma mater at Queens university. And now the kids use the term founder. Mm. They dream to be founders, which I thought was a really interesting linguistic shift. It's not entrepreneur, it's a founder. Entrepreneurs almost sounds math like 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 dirty to those kids. Yeah, like they I I I'm gonna ask the next group I work with, like why why do you choose that language? Like I'm not sure where it's coming from, but I thought it was a really interesting shift that that's where the vernacular moved. It did it. Wow, I actually never really thought of that because I haven't heard that term very much. But you do see that in the younger entrepreneurs that are get successful quickly. It's founder. And that's funny because you'll see that in Forbes if you're reading an article about a 30-year-old that's the founder. It's like, well, when did that? That's really interesting. I never, you stumped me there. You made me think about that. But then you touch that founder to your long list of amazing accomplishments. Oh, please. I don't need to add. I've actually, it's so funny. I went on Instagram yesterday and I looked at my bio and I was like, that looks obnoxious. And I just took a whole (laughs) bunch of stuff out and I'm like, well, I can't handle that. That's, 
that's ridiculous. I get that question. Like, people are like, what do you do? I'm like, mm, stuff. Because uh, what do you want me to say? Like, what are you supposed to say? I mean, you got fashion talks. You got your fashion columnist. You got Kafka. You got on a high. What do you even say? What, you, what do you, please tell me what you say. I say I spin a lot of plates. Ooh, I like that. You know, yeah, which, which like, and which, which ones make the most sense in terms of what we're talking about. So do I lead, do I lead with the CBC plate? Do I lead with like the podcasting plate? Do I lead with media training? Do I lead with parenting? But we spin a lot of plates and it's like being in the circus. You're spinning the plates, trying to make sure none of them crash to the ground. And well, and you're doing a really good job at it. I mean, well, how many children? <laughs> Two. Okay. So you got the, you said 12 and 16? Mm-hmm. Okay. Boy and a girl. Oh, you got one of each. I do. Oh, I like that you smile with that. The girl idea terrifies me. <laughs> <laughs> they are more... I was not one of those people that grew up thinking, oh my God, I can't wait till I'm a parent. Oh my God, I'm going to be a mother. Ugh. Yeah, was, yeah. But it is the most joyful part of my life. Aww. It's the most frustrating and terrifying part of my life. Yes. It is more than I ever imagined. I talk about that a little bit with some, uh, some other guests I had because the, the parenting aspect of being a business owner or a founder or whatever the hell you want to call yourself, um, your day job, if you have one outside of the home, which the home is more than enough, um, I, I talk to them about that because I find it fascinating how people who do the type of work that we do find the time and the separation with family and balance and how that all works. And I, I'm curious to know how you're able to balance that and what you, what, you know, kind of tools you use. I mean, is it, is it just like you and your husband and like you guys just have a schedule or you, you know what you do? Like what, what kind of stuff do you guys use to keep that going? Well, first is I hate the term balance because I think it creates an unrealistic expectation because my apologies then. Oh my God. Yeah, yes. Thank you for apologizing. For Sorry. No, but, so, <laughs> so Canadian, it hurts. But, you know, it, it's something that occurred to me uh, uh, quite a while ago is that this notion, because I think it's something that we impose on women is how yes. do you balance it all. Like right? when, when Dylan was born, no one asked my husband how he balanced it all. Do you You're know what right. I mean? So I think it is something that we create as a expectation and myth on women that somehow we can balance it all. Yeah, we can't balance and that. Shit. We just bring other people into our like some sort of elaborate scale that maintains some place of equilibrium. So, the way I like to think of it is a braid, because you have a strand that's parenting, you have a strand that's work, you have a strand that's your partner, you have a strand that's the things that you love to do, and it's more like weaving or braiding, and they all come together to make a fabric. And, and, and that's kind of my, my approach to things. And the, the other thing that has helped is, is as a family, we went through something when Dylan's my 16 year old. Mm -hmm. And when he was two, um, he was diagnosed with a Wilms tumor, which is a form of pediatric cancer and had to have his kidney removed. And we spent a lot of time at sick kids and, and he's great. He's, you know, he's 16, but Something that experience taught me was everything is solvable mm-hmm. and, and and assessing what is urgent really took on a new definition for me. So I am one of those people who is the first to say, you know what, like, this is a priority. Let's get this done. But that, nah, that's tomorrow. Like, 
I, I don't, I'm not a burn the candle at both ends. I need my eight hours of sleep. Like it, you know, prioritize, don't be lazy, but don't fall into the myth that everything is a fire because it's just not. It's, that's interesting that you say that because when I, when, when I hear you say that's a tomorrow thing, were you like that when your kids were younger? Like all the oh. way? Um, in what way? Like, well, I, when I think about that, when I think about that, like with Jack being how young he is, something like I would like to think that I could sleep. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I'd like to think that I could put importance on certain things. But when they're younger, it almost feels like there's no like that's just like not. I don't know if when that'll stop. I don't know when that type of structure that you're speaking of happens. I'm incredibly routined, but mm -hmm. that's a whole other animal on its own. Oh. Don't get me wrong. When my kids were little, I would have missed my own wedding for my kids' sleep schedule. Like, oh, right? Okay, so you're like <laughs> me too. Because I'm like, here's the thing. No, Dude. no. I was not like, oh, loosey-goosey. No, there was, there was a schedule and there was like shit that, needed to, that was needed to get done. Yeah. In some ways though, like when the kids were little, like things that would be like a tomorrow thing and keep in mind 16 years ago, like there was no Instagram. There was right? like, right. There was no, was there Facebook? I don't think I, there, no. like, there barely Facebook. Like there were things that are now just part of our like everyday routine, like social media that yeah. were not even like invented yet. So there was an ease with that. Like I still had cable. Like you know, <laughs> just, we didn't have anything but the three channels. We walked uphill both ways to school and back. Like you don't understand. Without even shoes. No like, shoes in the cold. In the cold in Ontario. And do you know what that feels like? Yeah. Yeah, I get exactly. that. Exactly. I watched commercials. Yeah. Like, do you know what a commercial is? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. exactly. No, I hear you. Um, so, so there, like, I acknowledge there was a little bit that was, that was different. Right. right. But mm -hmm. I think, and I mean, it's, this is going to sound like such hyperbole and I do not mean it to, but like, we talk so much about like the importance of being in the moment and the importance of being present and of taking that beat before we go into fight or flight about something. And this is something I still do now. Like, Oh my God, I haven't posted it. Oh my God, the kitchen is a, uh, oh my yeah. God, these, these, this email really needs to get done. This has to happen right now. Da, da, yes. da, da, da. Yes. Now, and, and I think as my kids get older, and this is something from watching uh, a, a, a family, a family relation. He's a, he's a, a cousin of my husband's, you know, I watched him grow up in a really, really high pressure, high time consuming job and he has a beautiful relationship with his kids because when he was with his kids he was with his, his kids. kids and that's something I think of not just when I'm with my kids but when I'm working on something professionally when I'm talking to a guest like the the importance of having focus just on what you're doing in that moment yeah. is what will make it meaningful and productive and important mm -hmm. and hopefully the best that you can possibly make it because you are giving it your full attention. And, and that's half that the battle. That is so important. Mm -hmm. And that's half the battle with, especially with like you, the, I want to touch on that point that you brought up. You are raising children in a time frame where they knew nothing 
but technology. And you brought up the Instagram and the Facebooks. And that is something I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely deathly afraid of for my son moving forward. And I don't even have a girl. Um, and I know for boys, it's always going to be the, 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 it'll take the back seat um, because girls are often put forward on, you know, the social media and, you know, things like that. But I, I try to be aware that he will still have, there will still be that, that idea of online bullying and all of that just because he's a boy that doesn't change. So I'm trying to be so much more uh, cognizant of what I do in front of him with my phone and me being on my phone because if he's always coming up to me and I'm always like this, he's going to think that's a normal behavior to perpetuate yes. as he grows and that terrifies me more than anything. Um, I... I, I do wonder, though, if social media will be the same when he's older. I'm thinking, you know, he's got another 12 years before he's going to be allowed to look at an, a device that is a phone version of something. And I like to think that I'm going to be this hard ass on it. I'm going to be this aware person, but people and things slip through the cracks and that's a genuine fear. And is it very open in your family when you have those conversations? Is there like a, a rule, like no phones at the dinner table, anything that you find helpful that you've been able to um, better your family's lives because of? Oh, there's absolutely no phones at the dinner table. Oh, I love you so 100%. much. 100%. Absolutely. Absolutely not. Unless someone says, I'm just picking up my phone because I'm going to look up something that we're talking about right now. A discussion like, point. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Talking checking points. the Oracle. Um, like there are no, not breakfast, not lunch, not dinner, no phones at the table. That's and beautiful. it is something where I had to manage my own expectations of what this tool meant for them in their lives. Right. Like I was like, Ooh, I oh, like my that. kids are not going to have, rah, 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 rah. Um, but the thing is, is it's also, it's, it's how they communicate with their peers. Like there is a certain utilitarianism to it yes. that is really important to acknowledge. Now that's easier with my 16 year old because um, my 12 year old doesn't have social media. Okay. Oh my yeah. God. She's dying to have like TikTok she or- will get stuff. over herself. It's for her own mental health. And, and, you know, part of the compromise is I have a TikTok account of which I post absolutely nothing, but if she wants, if we want to, if she wants to look at TikTok, cause someone has said, oh, you it have allows to her to, then we can do it together and it's on my phone. So love that, you know, so things, things like that help us manage it in our house. And we talk really openly, like up until not that long ago. I mean, I know all my kids' passwords. Oh, I check great. my daughter's phone all the time. There's See, no expectation of privacy with a 12 year old. I'm sorry. Like, well, no, but I, do you know how rare that is for you to not to cut you off there, but do you really, I don't know if you really truly understand how rare that is to hear somebody say that I cannot say that I've, I feel like I'm talking to a family member just because that's the way I view things. Like, why would I give you like my dad used to take my door off. Timothy used to take my door from me when I was a teenager. He goes, this is, this is a privilege. What are you thinking? There was no phone in my bedroom. All I wanted as a teenager was a phone or a television. Or a in TV. My yes. Neither. Oh God. No, neither one. I had a clock radio. So all of my, like, and I was a teenager that spent hours on the telephone. So it was oh, okay. like around the corner, you know, glued to the, yeah, the cords. Oh yeah. hundred percent. So there is certainly a balance between 
especially with my 16 year old, like honoring privacy and, and fostering trust because there does get to a point where you kind of need to say, okay, like I've laid the groundwork. I move forward with trust and we'll address things as they come. If you, if you constantly feel like you know, you're not being believed or you're being spied upon. Who wants that? I don't want that. Don't no, want it's a, that. it's a paranoid so, feeling. It's a paranoid feeling. It creates a paranoid mind. And then this idea that they have to hide everything from you and can't come to you. And that's the worst is when they can't feel like they can't come to you when something has happened. And that could be literally that fork in the road for them, which way they're going to go. And if they, if it's that bad, I mean, like if they can't come to you and have that conversation, that would be, that'd be devastating. I follow a woman named Allison Schaefer, who is oh, a, yes. oh my God, I genuflect at her altar. Um, and, you know, something she said early on, which really resonated with me was, you can't, you can't expect your teenagers to start being open with you if you haven't fostered a sense of trust and respect early on. Like, if you want your teenager to come to you with like, my friends are, you know, my friends started smoking. I think I'm pregnant, you know. Oh yeah, any of those. Whatever. <clears throat> yeah. Why would they come to you with that information if when they're 10, you like lose your bananas if they, you know, spill a glass of milk? Like you, you have to always foster the kind of environment you want them to have all the time in order for those conversations of trust and respect to happen. And you see those foster when in those children, you can tell the difference. You can almost see it with, you know, your friends have, uh, your kids have friends and you can see it when they, those friends are around their behaviors and you can see certain friends influence other behaviors in your kids that might not have always been the best, but you do what you can. And it takes time, right? Like it takes, yeah. it, like you'll appreciate this with, with so much of your experience. It takes time for training. It takes time to learn something. Mm -hmm. Things don't happen overnight. And no. as it pertains, you know, when I, I often say when I became a parent, it made me a like fuller human to understand the human race, right? Like, oh yeah. So many, so many of us are experiential learners. So, you know, I remember I tell this story often with, with people who are new parents where, you know, my son wanted to go outside. It's the middle of winter. My husband and I are curled up in coats and he's like, I'm not wearing my coat. And I'm like, well, when we leave the house, then we bring our coat. Yeah. Just is. You don't need to put it on. It's your body, but it has to come with us back and forth, back and forth. Oh, you don't want to put, you don't want to bring your coat. We don't need to leave the house. We can play cards inside. No, I want to go for a walk. Okay. Well, okay. We well, house, we need our coat. And he brought his coat halfway down the block. He put it on and it was never an issue again. Yeah. Why fight learned, about it? Why, why are we fighting about this? We don't need to have a fight about this. Yes. It's silly. But that comes, I, like I said, that comes with time. I've been able to develop a little bit of that. I've been very fortunate with my mom and my mother-in-law. They both have a good balance with that. And they, everyone actually shockingly gets along in my family. So I'm, I'm pretty fortunate. Yeah. In-laws and all. Right. It's, it's a, it's something that, um, we're, I'm incredibly fortunate to have. And I know you are like getting along with your in-laws is like half the battle. And because they're, well, for me, they're part-time raising him when I'm working. So, you know, they have this, um, <clears throat> you want your child raised a certain way and they, when they, you know, everyone gets along and is on the same page, it makes that very easy to, and so you see those, you know, habits and behaviors start to develop. And it's a, when they're good habits and behaviors, it's, it's a, it's a win. You feel like, okay, the, if I don't have to be hard on him, but I just need to make him know that 
I'm not your friend right now. I'm your parent. I'm here to protect you, but I'm also not going to sit there and force you. You're going to learn some lessons. You want to be cold? Let's find out how that feels. You don't like it. Next time we don't do that, then nobody has to scream at each other. It doesn't need to be that. Um, and so that's, I love, I love your perspective on that. I think that's important for people to understand that you can be, I, you can be hard, I'm doing quotations, on your children for a positive reason. It's the people who are afraid to say anything to their kids that might, <clears throat> for lack of a better word, hurt their safe space. And that makes me sad inside because you're allowed to have a safe space, sure, but doing the dishes isn't, isn't in your safe space. Oh, that's the discomfort, right? I mean, the expression Allison always uses is firm and friendly. You can exactly. Be firm without being an asshole. Well, yeah, there's a, yeah, exactly. You, you don't have to be an asshole about everything. I mean, certain things, when, it, there's a limit when Lego gets whipped at the face. I'm telling you, I swear to God, there's a limit. And it's, it, it takes about a second and a half for me. I'm not proud of it. But I will say cannabis has made a world of difference in the way I parent. Really? Yes, ma'am. The patience I have, the ability I have to shut off and separate what I need to be thinking about from a business perspective and deadlines and things that need to get done to, oh my God, do you see all of the birds hanging out on top of that fence? It's a birdie party. Let's make a song about it. Like seriously, but you, you can't have that mindset if you're always in this reality of anxiety and, and stress and that constant holding yourself like this. I feel like I can't, I am not a good mother without cannabis. And I think that's totally okay to say I've become a better parent, a better wife, a better person in society. I used to lose my shit at people, strangers, physically attack them. Okay. Full on, like not even be in Canada kind of deal. Right. And, yeah. and living in British Columbia, that was very difficult to deal with that first because I live in an area where we have a very high prevalence of the same people, unfortunately, that I happen to have a generational war against. And that doesn't make them all like that, but I, it's taken me 10 years to be able to go into places where I don't feel threatened because of the way someone looks. As bad as that sounds, it's like asking a Vietnam vet to go to Japan, or it's like asking um, you know, somebody who fought in any other war against anybody that's not their uh, complete nationality. It takes time, and that comes back to this time thing where you can't do everything at once. But I've learned that though, through the use of cannabis, I can be, I can have views and I can always feel a certain way, but that doesn't have to define the way I treat others. And it doesn't have to define the way that I act because I find cannabis holds me accountable. And that can sound, I hear how that sounds, but it holds me accountable. It really truly does. It will kick me in the face if I need to be kicked in the face in the sense of, if I am overwhelmingly anxious and that creates an outward vibe of just stress and high, 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 um, high energy. And then next thing you know, Jack's really wound. And next thing you know, my husband's all on edge. And it's about knowing how you make others feel too. And I think that comes with time. You touch on so many things there. Like anxiety is something we talk about in our house a lot. Like I suffer from anxiety. I had horrendous postpartum anxiety and depression oh. with both my kids. Like Dylan's cancer was easier than my postpartum I issues can't. until I got medicated. Mm. Um, and, and, 
you know, the, you know, you use the word vibe, you can call it energy, like, like anxiety, whatever you want to call right? it. Like, yes. You know, when, when one person in a household is got that like amped up mm-hmm. energy, it permeates through everything. And especially, you know, 2020 has been the year of anxiety. Let's be clear. Right. So, you know, talking about what, talking about the tools that are there to help manage these things, especially in, in extraordinary times. Like, Mm -hmm. I think we just all need to be open to, to hearing what works for others. Like, Mm -hmm. will it work for, for someone else? Like, might not possibly, but it might not. But the fact that it's working for someone, Mm -hmm. um, is something that we should, that we should celebrate and we should want to hear those stories because, you know, we know that, you know, anxiety is, is poison on so many other parts of our bodies. I remember when, um, when I went to see, uh, I was part of the psychiatric department at women's college when I was getting treated for my postpartum anxiety. And we had, I was nursing my son mm-hmm. and my husband and I had a lot of questions about, you know, what the medication and nursing, would that be okay? The combination and, of it. And the doctor was saying, you know, what we know is that the amount of the medication that would get into breast milk is minimal mm-hmm. and that the impact of an anxious mother on a baby is worse, is worse. That's what they told me at children's when I was, when I, they told me, they thought there for a while because of the drugs that I was on, like having a child with those would be detrimental incredibly. And the damage long-term wouldn't be known until it was much too late. And so they said, you know, once you're off X, Y, and Z, then we get out of that conversation. I remember going into women's here in in, in Vancouver. Um, and they said, you know, look, can't put it in writing, but there have been studies that CBD and low and low um, percentages of THC will not harm the fetus. It will actually cause a calmer environment for that child to develop, which will allow that child's neurons and receptors and the proteins and all that beautiful stuff that needs to develop in their brain. They would allow them to actually develop in a calm body, which makes them calm. So, you know, they don't say use this or don't, but they say, this is what we know. And this is what we know right now. And my child didn't cry uh, for a good, even after he was jaundiced, but even after that, he did not cry for like a good couple weeks. He was the chillest kid of all of the land. And I'm not saying I did anything during that pregnancy, but I am saying kid's pretty chill, pretty chill. And I like it and I'm happy with it and he's smart as hell. So it's like there are things that work for some and it should be totally acceptable for that as long as it's not detrimental to the child. End of the conversation is what should be. Um, I do want to ask you, and you may speak of this or say this is not something I would like to talk about, how do you feel about psilocybin? Ooh. I like that because you're not just thinking, you're, you're truly thinking. <laughs> I mean... There's new... Re- the reason I bring it up, let me touch there. The reason yeah. I bring it up is there's a new study that has just been done that shows that 
psilocybin has been shown to be four times more effective than antidepressants. And it's very new, but there are states studying it. And I feel like we are on the precipice of the new cannabis movement in legalization. So here's the thing is, you know, do, does it surprise me that these studies are being, and I'm by no means a science expert. Oh no, no let's just start there. I don't know everything, but it's interesting. It it is, it doesn't surprise me that it's Mm -hmm. being studied. It doesn't surprise me that it probably works for some people. Yeah. Right. Um, I think, I think we used to treat our brains like our heart or our liver, where we assumed that everyone's kind of worked the same way, mm-hmm. but now we realize our brains are actually more like our fingerprints and they right. are 100% unique to every individual with some, you know, basic functionality, commonalities, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, I think it is something like, would I be comfortable going into, you know, a case study on that right now? Maybe not the time. Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe not do the time. I think, do I think we will learn that there is more to that than we've ever thought there was? Yeah, I think we will. I'm excited about it. I, I, I just curious, just because you are, you know, you are a very open person to, you know, about having these discussions, and I think that's what's. Imp- uh, impressive about you too is you're you 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 hold all these hats you have all these views and some of them might not always jive with one another in everybody's eyes but I think you take that on you own the hell out of it and that's all that I I just love about that is is I feel like I can ask you these types of questions because you might not get these types of questions but your willingness and openness to have that just kind of hey I don't know everything but this is what you know I think that's I think I could, I wouldn't doubt it. You know, just having that willingness just shows to me that it really, you really come from the, the perspective of whatever is best for that body and that person at that time is, is whatever works for you. The judgment is never there. And I think that's so incredible, but I think that's what brings me to my next topic is you hold such, um, statute in the fashion industry. And so No, but you do. Here's why. Let me tell you why. Your influence is there because you have your finger on the pulse, okay? You know what's going on, and that's half of it. And when you know what's going on, you're able to influence. And when you're able to influence, that's when people like me see things that you do and go, holy shit, I can do this too. I really, truly think if she can do this, I can do this. And you give people like me that that, uh, hope. And so that brings me to CAFA. Can we talk about CAFA? Because if you weren't the woman you are and the take the time that you do, um, I think everybody would agree you're a big, you know, you're a big, you know, advocate. You're a big, um, you're a big name in the Canadian fashion industry and in all of the fashion industry. And you and you take such pride in in promoting Canadian brands, Canadian fashion, and and um, the people in that business. And I think that's why I want to talk about CAFA with you. So can you kind of talk about what CAFA is and what you do there and the importance of it? Oh, you're making me blush. Shush, oh you deserve goodness. it. Oh, my goodness. So um, CAFA was founded by, by Vicki Milner, as you know, and... The thing I love about working with CAFA is it's the only organization in Canada that unites the fashion industry for purposes of support and awareness, as well as economic development, as well as just creating this important sense of community. Our country is big. 
And while there's certainly um, like geographically, you know, like yeah, large, and, and while large. there's a concentration in, you know, South Central Ontario and Quebec, there is so much talent in the East Coast and the West Coast and in our North that having an organization that is working to bring all of those people together, um, I think is so, I think is so amazing. And while CAFA started, you know, with the big fancy schmancy awards galas each year, this year would have been the, the eighth. Um, it has certainly branched off into doing many more things. And, and that's where I sort of come in more. I don't have a lot to do with the, with the gala part of me itself. Um, Vicky, uh, very much runs all of the things that CAFA in particularly overseeing, overseeing what that is. And there is no one in Canada who's a, a more passionate advocate for designers and retailers and anyone who works in the fashion industry than Vicki Milner. Oh, she's incredible. Insane. Yeah, she is a force of, she's a force of nature. What, what I like to bring as my like wee cog in the CAFA wheel is, you know, when we do CAFA week and we have the fashion and retail forum, um, helping with that programming and, and who are the voices that would be, you know, interesting and timely to hear from and, and helping facilitate really interesting conversations. What are, you know, what, what, what's happening in, in other parts of the country, what's happening culturally that we need to be aware of. Like that's part of why on a high as an event started as part of CAFA, as part of CAFA week, because as the leader in Canadian fashion, CAFA should, you know, have, have a platform embrace exciting conversation. Yes. Um, and Vicki was so supportive of that. So to be a part of our, of our only national organization that brings, brings everyone in the fashion community together. And Hey, like, is it perfect? By no means, no means, no means. Every organization has places where it can, it can improve. Um, but to, to be a part of fostering awareness about the depth and, and scope of the talent we have in this country um, is so exciting to me because, and, and especially now, you know, we were talking earlier about the, the silver linings of, of COVID, you know, fashion was decimated in the spring, but something that I think is starting to rise out of that is this renewed awareness in wanting to support our local labels in, yes you know where where can i find the thing i need from a canadian company and and that to me is really is really exciting because i think when people hear the word designer it can conjure these notions of you know carl lagerford and millions of dollars and stuff like that and and that's not you know, there has been that stereotype, but that is by no means the case. Like there are wonderful, wonderful brands in Canada that have, you know, a scope of price points. Yeah. And, and, you know, as we enter an age where I think finally we are starting to think more conscientiously, more sustainably, more thoughtfully when we purchase things, I would rather spend a little bit more on a t-shirt from cotton that I know is being made with sustainable labor and is being made with responsibility and supports a Canadian brand. I'm happy to pay a little bit more for that than going to one of the fast fashion brands where I might be able to pay less for it, but it's going to fall apart and it's, it, it, it's not supporting something. Cause what I think that also does is it makes us treat our clothes 
with the respect they deserve. I think we've become so complacent with like, chuck it in the washer, chuck it in the dryer, roll it in a ball, throw it in a cupboard. Like Mm -hmm. clothes deserve, clothes deserve respect. It's okay to like take the time to hang things to dry or hand wash them, or they might need an iron. Like, yeah, that takes some time, but that time means that your things will last longer and you will have them to, you know, wear for longer and getting back into that mindset that these things that we put on our bodies aren't to be taken for granted. They are things of labor that are to be loved and cared for. Um, I hope is a, is a mindset that we're starting to see reignited as we, as we move forward. I'm very happy that you brought that up because for me, it's quite frustrating when I jumped into this fashion industry, like uh, full force, like just two feet, just see what happens kind of deal. And with that, I found I was met with a lot of different, a lot of different situations. You hear from retailers who want a new product every single month. They want it fresh. They want it new, no matter what, they don't care. Um, the price point needs to be X amount. They, and you know, they don't care if the customer, if it lasts them, you know, a year. It's whatever, they'll buy a new one. Um, When we started my company, the number one thing um, I wanted was simple things, the simple things, like knowing that it's being made somewhere, that I'm happy where it's being made, actually physically going to that place and visiting them and teaching them how to build it so it's being made properly so that it can last a customer, and then warrantying products. Because I believe that if you're going to spend X amount on one of my pieces, it better not be for a month. It better last you years and you should even maybe possibly pass it down. Even if it wasn't a diamond piece, why not? If it's going to last. Absolutely. Aren't some of our favorite pieces, the heirlooms that were passed down from us that we know were part of someone else's life? Like, yeah, really? I honestly, I have a ring. I talked about it in the fashion uh, magazine interview I had this month. I was really fortunate. They did a, a piece on me. i I was wowed by it. Um, did you know Winnie Harlow was on the cover? I almost died. Was almost it Odessa died. that interviewed you? It was. She's the best. She was the best. Yeah. So, and, and she wrote this amazing article and I was bawling my eyes out because it felt like for the first time we were being, you know, like this after CAFA, this was like, oh my God, people are actually starting in Canada to know who we are. And that was such a point of pride to me. It wasn't like, oh, we're getting known in the States. It's like, I'm getting known in the country that I I served for, I'm trying to now have a mission for, I'm still donating to, I'm working my life's work to hope that and help the society. Um, and so... I got, I got really, really lucky with that. So she, I was uh, chatting about this because my mom's ring she gave me very recently. Um, I was with my dad when he bought it for her. I was very little. I helped pick it out. And then I got it in the mail sent to me last year. And she goes, because my family is still back in Ontario. And she says, I don't want you to have to wait till I die to enjoy this. And she sent it to me and it just broke me because it was such a special piece to me. And I didn't realize how much weight it held until I got it given to me. And it's those pieces. And I think you're going to see moving forward, you know, how we have this kind of thrift store resurgence coming up of, you know, going to get all this. We're not going to have that in the next 20, 30 years because fast fashion has taken such a forward seat into our society in the way that we are so willing, like you 
said to throw something out and then not even iron it. And I'm guilty of putting things in the, you know, doing things that shouldn't be washed that way. But I immediately regret it and go, shit, because I know the effort, I know the time. And for example, I have a, I have a piece that I make here. I'm still the one who makes it for all of our retailers and all of our online. It's our shine brighter necklace. And that thing is a pain to make, but I will sit there and I will make them for hours on end. And the, I know the blood, sweat and tears and the calluses I get and the frustrations I have of building that piece. And the thought of someone just taking it and just taking it off and just throwing it breaks my heart. And I can only imagine the frustration brands feel when you see fast fashion come in and it's like just the love that we put into our pieces, the, the locally made, the Canadian made, even the North American made, if it's made here, it's, it's genuinely made at most times with a sense of pride and purpose and love and care so that it can last. And I have customers who have had the same bracelets for four years and it'll like, literally they'll break four years later and they'll come back and say, can I, can I buy a new one? I said, no, I'll just remake it for you. Keep it. There's no point because it's not about bringing in more product to the world. It's about bringing a product to the world that can last and hopefully help our whole as an environment, as a society. It's this whole kind of concept of, you know, renewing, reusing. And I remember a, uh, individual I met in New York once who said to me, um, they were with an agency and they said to me, this was years ago. You're doing something that we're stu- we're, far- we're finally starting to see. You care about packaging. You care about sustainability. You care about recycling. You care about charitable. Like I was doing those things early on, and I'm I can't tell you how happy I am to see it take on this life in this industry because, in my opinion, it's about damn time. I've always been of the mindset that if you're making margins and you're lining your pockets what the hell are you doing with your life? I I get some people will come to me and say, but you're a for-profit company. Yeah. And I don't, I don't deny that I'm for-profit, but 20% of net of that goes and uh, I don't take a paycheck. So last I checked, I think I'm doing something okay. Um, I think the way our industry is changing People are realizing that they don't need to necessarily own a $600 piece for it to be something that can last. And that's exciting to me. So I think it's hard when, and I, and I've thought a lot about this, this past year is that I think one of the, one of the challenges for the fashion industry is it's a commodity. Yeah. And how do you, and, and we know that we have just like a glut of product out there. So pulling back is really hard and you know we've seen you know the forever 21s going bankrupt tragically the le chateaus you know happened as well um so there's been you know the not every not every fallen company unfortunately is a fast fashion casualty but it is one of these and this is where the burden is on the consumer like it is for so many things is now we really need to think about who do we want to see through this time? Like mm-hmm. you are giving your dollars to a commodity at a time where a lot of people have had their, their income, you know, drastically impacted. So it, certainly never before in my lifetime, I think many people can say that, have we really seen this kind of level of thoughtfulness where 
where you buy things literally could be the difference between that brand or that company or that designer continuing another day or not. It literally and is. It literally, it literally is. And it's been so, uh, so uplifting to see so many Canadian companies like brand and unity, so brass and unity, pardon me, like your organization, be able to, you know, make it through these tough times because you have people who want to support you and because you have a, a value proposition and methods and practices in place that are sustainable. And really this time has, has shed a light on, on, who can be nimble and pivot and survive and, and who's not. And it's a lot of the fast fashion brands that are, that just don't, they just can't keep it together. And I understand it's, it's frustrating, um, for them. I, I guess it's my mindset is if you're going to, if you're going to do something, you better, you better do it 120% and put everything you have into it. So the idea of, of doing something fast fashion-y and that's what I was mentioning about with my retailers before it's, I, you know, I've kind of cut back and said, you know, like, look, I know you guys do your buying six months in advance, but I'm not clothing. So, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to start dictating now how I'm going to do my business. And because if I don't, I'll lose my business because if you guys want me to function the way fast fashion works, I'm not for you. And that's totally okay. Well, and it's retail that's going to take a really interesting turn because with, you know, online shopping is nothing new, but I, you know, every article I read talks about how every, every brand from Canadian tire through to, you know, any indie designer has seen an influx in dollars through their e-com platforms. And why, why, if I was starting a brand today, why would I try and find a retailer when I can go to direct to consumer? Well, that's what, and this, I think retailers are starting to feel a little bit butthurt about it. And I know that because I'm the one who deals directly with them. And yeah, they're like, well, what, wait, wait, hold on, wait, hold on. You don't need me as much as I thought. Wait, I have to pay my bills on time or you're not going to buy what? Like they get this sense of like panic almost. They're like, okay, I'm not entitled anymore. Go into these big trade shows. Like I, I got kicked out of a trade show and I'm the brand owner because brand owners aren't allowed there. And so to me, that's disgusting. Why am I not allowed to go promote my own business and my own company? That's, that's where, crazy. I, well, and so the way that I, I, I'm, I'm not happy COVID happened. Nobody's happy COVID happened, but it put a pause on things and it allowed some of this industry to go, wait a second, you need us way more than I need you. It's not about this fight to have more than another. How about we all just try to survive, build a quality product for once and give a shit about what we're selling. And that's where I see the difference between brands that are surviving and brands that aren't. You have to give a shit about what you are selling. And if you don't care, people will read right through your bullshit. COVID is shitty, but it doesn't mean there won't be usefulness to it. Oh no. No, there's been, I learned that I'm a mask manufacturer as well. Now I learned that I learned I could, I never knew that. That's what we did during COVID. That's how I survived. I made 200,000 masks for uh, Peterborough hospitals. So that's, you know, you have to do that. Like you said, if you don't find a way, you can lie down and take it, but you can also choose to fight for it. And that's why I think you're going to, the brands that are going to succeed from this 
are going to blow up in the best possible way because it's weeded out all the bullshit and all the wannabes and those that just have capital backing and people that are just making product to copy other product to then profit from it and line pockets to people who are genuinely doing better for the world, that are doing better for their community and society and taking the time to build a quality product. And so I, I'm not, I hate COVID, but I'm not, I'm, it's given time to focus for people. And I think I'm happy with it. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Don't hate me. I'm just saying. I know it's sad. It's tragic. It doesn't mean it doesn't have usefulness though, right? It's like no. when my son got cancer, would I have preferred that had not happened? Obviously. 100%. Were there, was there a usefulness to it? Were there things that came out of it that I can say, you know what, had that not happened, then this would not have happened. And that secondary thing was actually very positive mm -hmm. for sure. Well, you know what, that's the, my, the, literally the, the, the girls in my office, they make, they have like a running joke that I should only ever travel because when I travel is the only time I meet. It's like, I end up meeting people that end up taking my life the next step and then the next step and then they meet someone and then they meet someone and then I'm not kidding. I'll sit down on a plane and I can tell you four out of five times I'll get a celebrity, I'll get a doctor in mental health, I'll get a veteran who's like a Navy SEAL who works for so-and-so. Like I will get the weirdest shit but the, <laughs> the second I stop putting that, and this sounds silly, if I go to sit down at an airport and I don't have the energy, nothing will happen. If I don't constantly have this mindset that I'm going to move forward, it won't happen. But the second I turn my brain on and go, okay, this is going to be for the, the better. I'm doing whatever this, even though I don't necessarily want to be doing this, or I don't want to be on this layover for seven hours. There's a positive reason to this. I don't know what it is, but I'll figure it out. And almost every time something. Yeah. It's, it's because like, we are, we are energy, right? Like the, the neuroscience of thought and emotion is fascinating to me. I'm obsessed. Fascinating. Have you not seen so, my logo? It's a brain. I love it. Yeah. I'm into it. Yeah. I want to be and, more into and, it. And that, that whole idea of, you know, the energy, the mindset, the, you know, the, I need to like, positive begets positive. Like it mm -hmm. can sound really like woo woo and Tony Robbins and whatever, blah, blah, blah. but it's, it's true. true. Like, it I think it's like uh, all roads point to this is a thing. Right. And, and, and from a mental health perspective, you know, harnessing that is what is what keeps us going. Half it's the time, everything, whether we know it or not, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, exactly. I just did a podcast before you with uh, Dr. Donna, <laughs> my two Donnas for the day, Dr. Donna Ferguson from CAMH. And that's, she's a psychologist and that's exactly what she's cognitive behavioral therapy, the, the power of the mind. And I was talking to her about up until recently, like in the past, you know, few decades, it really feels like our, our healthcare system has really realized that the, the mind and the body are one. And when you separate them and you only treat one or the other, it, they they will never they will never balance for lack of a better word they will never they will never meld the they way need they need to need support to. each other exactly exactly and so I think that's like so important when when you're talking about uh, business and you're talking about those that are going to push forward it's it's really that that it comes back to like roundabout rate to what we were talking about that willingness to let 
your child fail so they develop that scrappiness so that hopefully if they're ever put in a situation like the 2008 like depression and then a flipping pandemic like a decade later they can survive through it sec- you know successfully take their business through it and then thrive afterwards do you know what i mean absolutely yeah so absolutely. i'm 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 you know i'm i there's literally like a million things i could talk to you about um but i I think I'm going to end it there because I think our listeners are going to be overwhelmed with the amount of information and, and genuine happiness and positivity that you've just put into their the lovely little earlobes. Um, I'm just grateful for this, for you acknowledging my existence as a brand and as a, as a founder um, and being willing to take the time with me. I think you touching on mental health the way you did and showing your you're, you always show your human side, but really showing your mom's side and your mama bear side, I think that's going to resonate so much with our listeners. And like you said, it's not a balance, right? It's We shouldn't ask too much of ourselves like that. We should just be asked just like anybody else. We can all learn something from you and the way that you've been able to, you know, curate your life as this extraordinaire of fashion and world, but also as this mother and this you know, six, I consider a successful parent. You got a 12 year old and a 16 year old. I mean, you can't be doing that wrong if they're still <laughs> thriving and alive and, you know, successful at being children. So, um, thank you so much uh, for taking thank the time. You. It was a, an honor and a privilege to, uh, to be able to have this conversation with you as someone who is, you know, so devoted to using every fiber of their being and their platform to, to make the world a better place. It was, it was my, my pleasure to to be able to to have this conversation and and i think you know mental health is just mental health is the foundation of everything like you know i i was you know diagnosed and treated for anorexia when i was in university and you know that experience profoundly impacted me. And what was one of the things that always made a difference? You know, consistent exercise, not like exercise, like going for a walk, getting fresh air, honoring the the connection between our, our mind and our body and and that it's okay to to need to be gentle on ourselves. Like there's so, mental health is so important. It's it is so, so important. It's people think it's this, this this thing that can always be controlled, but unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. It takes work. It takes drive. It takes effort. It takes work mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, for and, if sure. We, and if we don't allow that and we don't foster that young in our children, no wonder we're we're sending them into the society with social media and going, "Good luck, kids." Oh my God! If you want to see something generate anxiety in a person, like give take their phone away. Social media, like you know, it 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 is there is a correlation there. You know, I'm not saying that. I'm sure Dr. Donna from earlier today would re- reinforce that as well. So watch the giving, social dilemma. All the, all the statistics are there. It's incredibly, it's, it's very obvious. I haven't watched that yet. My husband and oh. I were talking about it this morning because I want to watch it with our kids, which they will think is just me trying to like no, they communicate won't. a message, which I Mm-mm. totally am. But I think it's so important to be aware of the impact of the tools we are using. They did such a great job at the way they built that documentary out. 
that they made it almost like there was a, a movie going on. So there's actors. They go back and forth from talking to the uh, these people who created the like button and created Twitter and created the coding. But then they go back to showing how it actually works. Like, so they have an actor who's like, somebody introduces him to social media. And then they watch him go down this rabbit hole. Now he's not going to soccer practice. And then they see these ads being, and they see the back end. And I heard so many parents um, say to me, like, I'm going to watch it with my teenagers. And then the result was really positive because they did such a great job of not shoving it down their throat and making oh it gosh, like, I'm um, so happy to hear that. It's really well done. I'm, I'm, I was beyond about it. I thought it was one of the best and most terrifying things I've seen this year, but by far the most uh, positive impact I'm hopeful for moving forward and starting that conversation so that hopefully we don't have to deal with this in the next coming years and the suicide rate won't keep skyrocketing skyrocketing with uh, these young girls. Oh, and so we're not judged by our worst day or our worst decision, right? Why does that have to? Yeah, like I've seen, like, do you remember blue uh, eyeshadow with white? Do you remember blue, well, white honestly, eyeliner? I used to paint my nails with liquid paper. Like, come on. Oh, I did too. <laughs> and then I grew up. Right? And then I just started drawing on myself. It's what yeah. happens. It's fine. I became a child all at once. It was a beautiful situation, all right? We, yeah. You win some, you lose some. Donna, we, we can't all be you, okay? Oh, my God. <laughs> Listen, lady, I am uh, I'm grateful. And you are welcome to come on and come visit me the second that um, this disaster is over. And, and hopefully we'll get a chance to see each other at the gala next year. Because mama wants a new dress. Seriously. I have a plan already. I've got an outfit. I'm just waiting. Just waiting. All right, dear. Such a pleasure. Such a pleasure. I look forward to staying in touch. Yes, ma'am. And keep me in the loop with like the launch and everything so uh, so I can help spread the word in Catholic I, I appreciate that more than you can ever imagine. Everyone, Donna Bishop. For my resource for this week at the end of the Brass and Unity podcast, we have picked Help for Heroes and they provide lifetime support to those who are wounded while serving their country. They are a British resource. So for any of our NATO friends over there listening to this podcast, please check them out. Uh, they do incredible work to make sure that you are looked after after an injury uh, while deploying and they will do their best to make sure that all of your needs are met. Um, that'll be Help for Heroes. I want to say .uk, but definitely take a double check. Um, but they do incredible work, so please check them out while you can. And we will see you all next week.